Which breakfast cereal do you prefer? Frosted flakes or sugar puffs? It's the sort of decision many of us face bleary-eyed each morning. But if you watch Netflix's interactive film Bandersnatch, you might recognise that this is the first choice that viewers have to make when deciding how the story of the protagonist will unfold. While the ability to choose what happens next will have seemed like a novel innovation to some, fictions that hand over power to the reader date back to the 1960s. Do you want to time travel back over these six decades? Then hit play and continue to listen to George Cox of the University of Nottingham as he guides us through the labyrinthine history of interactive adventure. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded at our series of public late summer lectures in 2019. So let's begin with some questions. If you were on the Titanic, would you change its fateful course? If you sat across from Abraham Lincoln on the train en route to Gettysburg, what advice would you give him? And if you were facing down a T-Rex drool dripping from its maw, would you keep a cool head? In 1979, Edward Packard's The Cave of Time inaugurated the Choose Your Own Adventure series of children's books and gave kids the opportunity to discover just what they would do in these situations. Subsequent printings included a selection of testimonies from children and their teachers. One said, it was boring, but I read it nine times. They suggested the books made good teaching tools because of their rereadability. With a single text, children could enjoy multiple stories and plots and return to the same product time and time again. Bantam Books' Choose Your Own Adventure series popularised a genre of text that gave readers the ability to interact with and navigate strange new and often old worlds whilst being spoken to directly by the text. This was your adventure. Choose Co Limited now holds Choose Your Own Adventure as a registered trademark. The term has come to denote a particular type of interactive narrative, losing its specificity in the same way that a hoover might denote a vacuum cleaner. For instance, in 2019, ChooseCo filed a $25 million lawsuit against Netflix for the indiscriminate use of the trademark in the interactive film Black Mirror Bandersnatch, which Netflix sought to dismiss. If we are to speak about this type of text, we need to develop a new vocabulary that is attentive to the possibilities and affordances of texts like Cave of Time and Bandersnatch. I propose the term flow fiction, just as flow charts and flow diagrams are pictorial representations of choice and alternative pathways, flow fiction is always identifiable by its branching narrative possibilities. This lecture, like the Cave of Time, is a form of time travel as we go back and recover the traces of flow fiction in decades past. First, however, we must define precisely what it is that we're looking for. Um, And I think that there are three central aspects of flow fiction that we can identify. Choice structures, reader protagonists, and story worlds. I argue that the concept of choice structures is how we can come about looking at choice in flow fiction as put forward by Mawater and others in 2014. Whilst choice poetics may have previously only been applied to video games, the framework offers terms that transwell to print and screen. At the end of a page or scrolling to the bottom of a web page, readers are confronted with several options. This is a choice structure consisting of framing, options, and outcomes. 
Take the following example of a choice structure in the cave of time. You walk into the interior of a strange cavern, then wait while your eyes become accustomed to the dim amber light. Gradually you can make out the two tunnels. One curves downward to the right, the other leads upward to the left. It occurs to you that the one leading down may go to the past and the one leading up may go to the future. If you take the tunnel leading to the left, turn to page 20. If you take the tunnel leading to the right, turn to page 61. If you walk outside the cave again, turn to page 21. The choice is framed in that second paragraph, the short one, by giving readers a mysterious foreknowledge of what's to come. Why would it occur to you that the tunnels end that way? It's kind of there for narrative convenience. The three options provided below the uh, footer provide readers with different directions and methods of navigating the story world of the narrative. Outcomes follow when an option is selected and may or may not correspond with the expectations cultivated by the framing and the options. Following the tunnel left and then being transported to the future, you turn to page 20 to find yourself in the future. Also important to flow fiction is the reader protagonist. The protagonist of flow fiction is akin to the protagonist of a video game, seen as a cursor designed for what James Newman calls vehicular embodiment. Think of the invisible body in a first-person shooter. Devoid of gender, ethnicity, age or personality, this characterless, flavourless you is the blank canvas onto which readers can project themselves. Flow fiction always already hails the reader as the protagonist, using a direct second-person address to the you that holds the book in their hands or whose fingers eagerly hover above the keyboard. Finally, reading becomes a form of topographic exploration, whether the reader is exploring a treacherous cave or an internal mental space. Either way, the reader is traversing a story world. Like the boxes of a flowchart, flow fiction is divided into discrete segments. And as J. David Bolter argues, quote, whenever we divide our texts into unitary topics, organize, organize those units into a connected structure and conceive of this textual structure spatially as well as verbally, we are writing topographically. But what does topographic writing look like in practice? According to Charlie Brooker, creator of Black Mirror and writer of Bandersnatch, watching Bandersnatch is like visiting a city for the first time. You want to feel you've seen enough of a city before you feel completely satisfied. The consequence is that both creator and consumer have to accept that there are some parts of the text that will remain uncharted, as the traversal of the text will inevitably leave out content. Carrying on the landscape metaphor, Brooker reveals that if you're creating a game, you might create whole vistas that people will never see. When the reader acts as a tourist, they must reconcile their reading with this fear of missing out and prioritise satisfaction over completion. So just before we set off on our adventure in time and space, let's recap exactly what we're looking for in flow fiction. Choice structures consisting of framing, options and outcomes, reader protagonists addressed as you, and story worlds that can be traversed. Importantly, these criteria can also be applied to non-text-based works. Just as science fiction tropes can be manifested, identified and evaluated in novels, film, TV and video games, I think that flow fiction as a genre is equally transmedia. So, we begin our journey in 1960s France 
Founded by writers Raymond Quinault and François Le Lyonnais, the French group Oulipo, short for Ouvoir de Literature Potentielle, or Workshop of Potential Literature, sought to create works that were constrained by rules. Examples include uh, Georges Perec's La Disparation, published in English as Avoid, which is completely without the letter E, and Quinault's own poetry collection Cent Mille Millards de Poèmes, published in 1961 which was a collection of 14 sonnets where the lines were cut separately to the page so you could turn each individual line separately and would create 10 to the 14 different permutations of poems, which Quinault said would take 190 million years to read. Unfortunately, I can't take that long to do my PhD, so I'm not going to dwell on that text. Instead, um, let's focus on Quinault's Un Conte à votre façon, published in 1967. Un conte à votre façon, or yours for the telling, or a story as you like it, depending on which translation you read, uses that second-person address that typifies flow fiction. Rather than pages, each individual section of the text is a numbered bullet point, under which there is text followed by two options. Once upon a time, there were three wee peas, dressed in green, dozing cosily in their pod. They had chubby, moon-shaped faces, and breathed through their funny little nozzles, snoring softly and euphoniously. If you'd prefer another description, go to nine. If this one will do you, proceed to five. So the text fragments of uh, this story tend to set up an ambiguity, and the choice structure offers two options framed around your curiosity. Do you want to stay with what you've got or do you want to twist and have another description? There's actually one example where there's a word that he suggests readers might not know. And the first option is look it up in a dictionary, which kind of subverts the structures that it puts in place. The first option suggests that if readers wish to know more, they should proceed to the suggested section. The outcome here being further knowledge. We now zoom forward eight years and cross the Atlantic to arrive in 1975 in Massachusetts. Adventure was created by Will Crowther and was available on ARPANET-connected computers, ARPANET being an early precursor of the internet that connected the Department of Defense with university research clusters. Crowther was an avid spelunker, and Adventure simulates the area known as Bedquilt Cave. Bedquilt is an entrance to the Flint Mammoth Cave system in Mammoth Cave National Park in central Kentucky, the longest known cave system in the world at over 650 kilometers. In the spring of 1976, Don Woods, working at the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, discovered adventure on the university's medical school computers. Woods fixed bugs in Crowther's now lost original and incorporated new, often fantastical editions that edged it further away from a documentary experience of Bedquilt Cave towards something more akin to the Mines of Moria in Lord of the Rings. Adventure has invisible choice structures. Readers hailed with that second person address again navigate the text via inputting two-word commands such as go south. This command should be thought of as a choice as there is only a small finite pool of imperatives the program understands. As it may not immediately be obvious to readers what to do in a given situation, they must use trial and error to deduce the particular logic of the story world. For instance, the first time I actually played Adventure, you come across a bird in a cave and you've previously picked up a wicker cage, so you can put two, to, two and two together and work out what you're supposed to do. 
So I type uh, cage bird and it doesn't work. I type put bird in cage and that similarly is met with a blank kind of response. It was when I put catch bird in cage that all of a sudden it worked uh, and I'd managed to deduce what it was that the game expected of me. So the type of options that adventure has or in the parlance of choice poetics, choice idioms, uh, we can call deduced choices. These are choices that don't exist on the surface of the text, but that readers must determine exist in a logical working through of the framing. Unsurprisingly, intrinsically important to texts like adventure are the ideas of adventure and exploration. Critics Nies and Holland synthesize these ideas in the fundamental structure of the quest. They write, the reader hero sets out along a series of roads or passageways or rooms. One has to sketch a map to have any success at all with these games. She meets various helpers or adversaries, encounters obstacles, aids or treasures, and finds dead ends, or more likely, that she left something several stages back that she now needs. The protagonist of the quest is the reader hero, a term that informs and foreshadows what I argue is the broader reader protagonist of flow fiction. Indeed, the protagonist of adventure is only ever referred to as you in a present tense voice. Exploration requires a lot of work from the reader in order to map adventure, especially as it makes doing so really tricky for readers. In the opening instruction, they're advised that cave passages turn a lot and that leaving a room to the north does not guarantee entering the next from the south. These cartographic skills prove particularly invaluable when the user stumbles into either of Adventure's two mazes, an example of which is called the vending machine maze. You go into a cavern and you're met with the following text prompt. You're in a maze of twisty little passages, all different. So far, so helpful. You think, what am I going to do? So you move into the next passage. It then resets and you're given this prompt. You are in a little maze of twisting passages, all different. And you think, come on, you need to help me out here. I don't understand. But it's when you reflect and you write this down and you create a kind of mind map or a, or a flow chart of what you want to do, you realize that each text prompt has an idiosyncrasy that sets it apart from the other. And by putting those text prompts in relation to one another, spatially, you can begin to work a way through the text. Mapping the story world is essential as flow fiction readers fear failure and rejection with every blind outcome. Tracy Kidder's Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Soul of a New Machine, described the lengths some computer program programmers went to when playing adventure. He writes, strewn before me across the surface of his desk, like the relics of a party, lay dozens of roughly drawn maps. Webs of lines connected the circles, and each line was labeled, some with points of the compass, some with the words up and down. Just as Nies and Holland suggested, sketching maps is a vital part of understanding adventure's geography. Now, as we already know, adventure isn't the only flow fiction to heavily feature a dark and mysterious cave. In 1979, Bantam Books published former lawyer Edward Packard's The Cave of Time as the first in the Choose Your Own Adventure series of books with illustrations by Paul Granger. Most of the choice structures in the Cave of Time, including the one that we've already seen in this lecture, are physical movements framed as an interior thought processes. Readers can often choose which tunnel to investigate and whether to dwell in a certain location or to leave. Each compartmentalized section of text can be conceived as a compartment of the eponymous cave. 
The labyrinthine structure of the cave is reflected and mimetically reproduced in the structure of the book. Now, the Cave of Time begins with your protagonist hiking through Snake Canyon before pausing to wait out an impending thunderstorm in, in a dark and dank cave. When your character emerges, they're transported to many, many different locations in time and space. And like an entire season of Doctor Who crammed within the covers of a small book, the significant places you alight on your travels include the Earth, several billion years in the past, the Cretaceous period, complete with T-Rexes, a hundred million years ago, the Ice Age with mammoths and early men, the building of the Great Wall of China, and feudal Europe with castles and knights, which then turns out to be on the shores of Loch Ness, complete with the Loch Ness Monster in about 932. Or you could visit colonial Boston and Philadelphia in 1718, or you could be on the train with Abraham Lincoln en route to Gettysburg during the American Civil War, or you could be on board the Titanic in 1912 on its maiden voyage, or you could be in America in 1990, or America in 2022, or America in 3742, or America in the year 4 billion AD, or the eventual heat death of the sun. But at the very start of the book, before readers go on this adventure, they receive the following advice. Warning, do not read the book straight through from beginning to end. These pages contain many different adventures you can go on in the cave of time. From time to time on your read-along, you will be asked to make a choice. Your choice may lead to success or disaster. The adventures you take are a result of, the, of your choice. You are responsible because you choose. After you make your choice, follow the instructions to see what happens to you next. Remember, you cannot go back. Think carefully before you make a move. One mistake could be your last. Or it may lead you to fame and fortune. The warning makes the book's high stakes clear. Not only is it up to the reader to guide the book's protagonist away from peril and towards glory, but there's no distinction between the reader and that protagonist. The italicised, emphasised you is both the intended reader and the diegetic character. Yet the potential hazards the book warns of are neither as fatal nor as final as the warning suggests. Readers are free to re-enter the text, see where they went wrong, and go in another direction. They may even leave a thumb or finger on a previous section so that they can backtrack. An untimely demise or unsatisfactory resolution can be effectively replaced, promoting reading as a method of textual exploration. As the book's blurb on the back cover proclaims, the best part is that you can keep reading and rereading until you've had not one but many incredible adventures. Remember that boy that wrote the blurb, he could read it nine times. Like with adventure, and as we will see with Bandersnatch, readers are often confronted with frustration, risk, and rejection. It's akin to the failure found in video games, where you, the reader or player, are personally liable for any narrative failings and not the character themselves. Despite ostensibly being a book for children, the tone of the Cave of Time is often dark. Among the book's 40 endings, as the protagonist, you end up hanged, bombed in the Blitz, stranded on the world's only island, eaten by a T-Rex, and in two different stories, live out the rest of your life as an indentured labourer. This failure, a failure to procure a happy ending, encourages the reader to try again in order to find a happier fate. 
In the 90s, this idea of flow fiction failure is emphasized in the horror of the Give Yourself Goosebumps books by R.L. Stein, and flow fiction becomes more adult in some print texts published in the early 21st century. However, flow fiction also returns to the potential of dig digital texts that Adventure First displayed, none more so than in Twine stories. Twine being an open source uh, and free tool for writing non-linear fiction. Twine stories resemble flowcharts with discrete blocks separated by pathways. Many of the leading producers of Twine text have marginalized identities and used the platform to represent their personal experiences. Twine stories resemble zines as they are not produced by large industrial workforces, but individuals. The democratization takes cultural production away from institutional gatekeepers who have coders and programmers to instead that anyone be able to tell their story. Uh, the first example that we'll look at, Queers in Love at the End of the World, is quite self-explanatory. The reader protagonist, addressed as you, is faced with saying goodbye to their beloved 10 seconds before Armageddon. Now, unlike with print flow fiction, the use of hyperlinks enables anaanthropy to merge the framing and options of the choice structure into a single, single paragraph of text, the blue phrases indicating options that will lead to outcomes. So this is the first segment of text that you're given. In the end, like you always said, it's just the two of you together. You have 10 seconds, but there's so much you want to do. Kiss her, hold her, take her hand, tell her. The options there being the blue words, kiss, hold, take, and tell. In the top left corner of the all black interface, a circular timer ticks down from 10, reminding readers of the inevitability of their demise. The work challenges readers to pass as much text as they can before the timer elapses and it resets their progress. Just as in Choose Your Own Adventures, readers have to fail in order to progress across and deeper into the narrative. Despite the mournful announcement that everything is wiped away when the clock eventually hits zero, the end of the world is temporary, with a blue link beneath letting you restart. The framing of the choice structure affects readers' approach to reading. With so little time, readers don't actually read a lot of the text. They simply memorise so that they can whistle through the bits that they've already read and find new moments of reflection. The reading experience is made desperate and fraught by the restraint of the framing, mirroring the desperate and fraught situation of the protagonist. Beyond the usual hailing of you that we see here that's typical of flow fiction, the experiential impact of the clock on reading creates a reader protagonist through shared affect. Now, Howling Dogs by Porpentine uses choice structures to portray uh, the hyper-awareness of a person dreaming set in a world in which the reader protagonist is incarcerated in a scientific facility, dreaming offers a form of escapism and identity play. So as is the style with many Twine stories, the choice structure in the text are intertwined. There's hyperlinks within the paragraph. Uh, the paragraph here describing uh, a feast that you attend. Um, and at this moment, there are 75 different hyperlinks on screen. You won't be able to read the paragraph, but the hyperlinks are the, are the blue words. The intimidating abundance of options formally represents the unsettling overstimulation of the reader to protagonist senses, particularly at a point when they are paranoid at being poisoned at the feast. All but two of the options lead to the same outcome, a banal response of, how interesting, 
On the other hand, clicking drink deep at the bottom continues the narrative towards an unhappy-ish ending, whilst clicking wrong, which is right there in the middle of the paragraph, leads to a different, happier ending. Hidden in the multitude of options, finding this link requires an attention to detail from the reader that matches the attention to detail required of the protagonist in their fraught situation. Again, aligning the protagonist and the reader through the experience of reading. Flow fiction on Twine can simulate mental states by playing with the options that are presented to the reader as they traverse the text, and we've just had two examples of that. Another example is Depression Quest, which uh, attempts to create an authentic digital representation of living with depression. The fiction's epigraph, taken from David Foster Wallace's novel Infinite Jest, describes depression as a double bind in which Anne slash all of the alternatives we associate with human agency are not just unpleasant, but literally horrible. This quote frames depression as a suffocating diminishment of choices and alternatives and a reduction of agency and control. The work uses the affordances of flow fiction to portray this theme. The choice structure communicates the theme of diminishing agency introduced by the Foster Wallace epigraph and maintained throughout by presenting the reader with what Mawata and others in Choice Poetics uh, call an unchoice where the reader lacks the ability to choose an option other than the individual option available for them. This framing of helplessness is intensified by the transparency of the unchoice. There are more appealing options visible, options one to five there from that screenshot, um, yet they are distinctly struck through in red font, drawing attention to how inaccessible they are. And rather than presenting option six just on its own, the preceding five options haunt the inevitable preordained choice to generate frustration and regret that they are perhaps accessible if different options were chosen at an earlier screen. This frustration and regret felt by readers aligns with the frustration and regret felt by the protagonist at this moment. Twine stories use their choice structures, reader protagonists and story worlds to present a symptomatology of mental distress. Choices that merge reader and protagonist lead to reader's complicity in the perpetration of events that lead to or resurface trauma. This sense of perpetration is explicitly foregrounded in the Netflix film Black Mirror Bandersnatch from 2018, late 2018, where viewers enable the protagonist's psychosis. So Charlie Brooker, creator of the Black Mirror television series, initially used Twine to plot Black Mirror Bandersnatch. However, um, Brooker found its structures limiting. He says, the story was expanding and it was like whole new islands started appearing to the extent that you couldn't do this in a flowchart because it's dynamic and tracking what state you're in and doing things accordingly. Netflix developed an in-house storytelling tool called Branch Manager in order for Brooker to plot these divergent and parallel narratives. But despite this innovation, uh, in Bandersnatch actually has a very long genealogy and kind of interactive film going all the way back to the 1960s. But even on Netflix, it kind of has precursors in Puss in Book, Buddy Thunderstruck, Stretch Armstrong, and Minecraft Story Mode. So. We shouldn't fetishize Bandersnatch as something that's doing something that nothing else is doing. So the series Black Mirror is an anthology science fiction series that often portrays the potential dystopian consequences of technology 
uh, on humanity. And Bandersnatch, in particular, is set in 1984, and it charts Stefan uh, and his work adapting the hefty flow fiction novel Bandersnatch into a successful adventure computer game. Stefan is shepherded through the process by programming prodigy Colin and his boss Mohan Tucker at the British software company Tuckersoft. Um, despite his father's best efforts to get Stefan to open up to his therapist, the shadow cast by the traumatic events of Stefan's youth paired with the encroachment of his game's choice structures into his everyday life lead him to psychosis. Reality and the game collide as Stefan begins to question whether he has any control over his own decisions, making the viewer reflect on their own agency and the extent to which the film is truly interactive. So there are 250 segments of footage in the film with a total duration of 312 minutes, but the average runtime of Bandersnatch uh, is shorter at 90 minutes. Throughout the process of programming his game Bandersnatch, Stefan often turns to the book that he has on his desk called Lock Door, Get Key, a guide to writing adventure games. Um, and the eponymous commands, imperative and terse, Lock Door, Get Key, allude to adventure that we looked at earlier, the go south, go east. Um, yet the options available to viewers when they're watching Bandersnatch are more akin to the hyperlinks that we saw in Twine or even the hypothetical actions that we saw in Packard's Choose Your Own Adventures. Choice structures in the film are quite literally framed within the screen interface. The aspect ratio changes and the black border enlarges with the two options appearing at the bottom of the screen. A white line between the options and the film itself shortens, visualizing the time constraint that the viewers have for selecting an option. A lot like that circle that was in the corner of Queers in Love at the End of the World. If viewers neglect to intercede in the narrative and don't make a decision, then the film will automatically go down a certain pathway that is preordained by Charlie Brooker along the lines of something that he personally finds interesting. When viewers reach one of Black Mirror Bandersnatch's multiple endings, they can either select a link taking them to the end credits or return to previous significant choice structures, seeking out alternate scenes and conclusions. The result is an experience based on repetition. And this is particularly drawn attention to right at the start of the, uh, the film where you visit Tucker Soft offices for the first time and you meet Colin for the first time. Colin's working on his brand new, never before, no one's seen it video game Nosedive uh, and there's an error that goes off in the, in the game Nosedive and Colin describes it as eyeballs overrunning the video memory and Stefan's kind of impressed by this. Stefan then goes in to meet Tucker and is given a... Um, job offer and if you accept the job offer it then precipitates the shortest playthrough of bandersnatch and the film ends but not before colin says to you sorry mate wrong path you then play through again revisit the office in what seems to be exactly the same scene except this time stefan recognizes the game that colin's working on despite the fact that he hasn't seen it in this playthrough which colin's kind of weirded out by and then recognises the error that we know, but Stefan couldn't possibly know. You then go back into the office and reject the offer to maintain the narrative. But it's playing with the idea that you're repeating something, but the characters shouldn't know that. The importance of this early rejection not only normalises failure in the narrative, but also emphasises to viewers that their agency is limited. When Stefan visits Colin's flat, Colin offers him LSD. Even if you say no, Colin spikes Stefan's drink regardless, the drug trip beginning without your involvement. 
This lack of control is knowingly referred to when Stefan, Stefan says to his therapist, I've been trying to give the player too much choice in his game Bandersnatch. So I went back, strip loads out. Now they've only got the illusion of free will. Really, I decide the ending. How do we reconcile Stefan's character with what we've already established is the reader protagonist, that you? Well, actually, there's this moment in the film where that you comes into being. Stefan has another programming malfunction at his computer and he starts to throw his tea over his desk, but he just has second thoughts. He feels this transcendental urge telling him to throw tea over his computer. He shouts to the ceiling, who's there? Who are you? Just give me a sign. That you suddenly becoming us as we watch. He's hailing us through the screen and talking to us as viewers. We're then given this choice structure. We can either select the Netflix logo or select the icon that he's been using to represent decision trees throughout the film. If we select Netflix, then we can put this on Stefan's screen. I am watching you on Netflix. I make decisions for you. All of a sudden, we, the viewer, become that I who is a character in the film. We become internalized within the narrative of the film, going from just impartial, external, to something and someone that suddenly has control over a character in the video. Um, Stefan, obviously being in 1984, has no idea what Netflix is. You clarify for him, it's a streaming entertainment platform from the early 21st century. You even go further, because he doesn't quite understand what streaming is. It's like TV, but online. I control it. Your choices become more than complicit in Stefan's psychosis. Viewers are the very cause of his unease and paranoia. Whether this is formally true in the flow fiction, bearing in mind viewers' lack of agency that we've discussed, is irrelevant. Viewers feel the effective experience of this causality. So we've come a long way since uh, Queneau's Little Peas in 1967 and the 21 segments to Black Mirror's 250 filmed scenes. But let's look at what the future could hold for flow fiction. And, and despite its technical innovations, the potential legacy of Bandersnatch might lay in its economic potential. The first simple tutorial-like decisions that the viewer of Bandersnatch has to make between eating Frosted Flakes and Sugar Puffs than between listening to the Thompson Twins or Now Two on his Walkman, both require viewers to express a preference for one product over another and in doing so, give Netflix valuable data about their personal taste. Netflix can aggregate viewer data as small as serial preference to abstract habits such as the morality of their preferred narratives. Whether you murder your father in the film might determine the number of true crime documentaries you're advertised when you turn on the app. Black Mirror Bandersnatch's personalization is indicative of the algorithmic micro-targeting seen across the platform already and may be used to form more precise marketing infrastructures. Now, despite initially signaling that the data would be kept private, Netflix has since revealed some interpretations of the decision-making data in Black Mirror Bandersnatch. 60% of audience viewers voted for Frosties, whereas only 40% went for Sugar Puffs. And that, that thing that I, I spoke about, that job offer that Tucker gives you at the start of the film, 73% of people accepted him and went to the short uh, kind of ending first. In one bizarre example, and this is my favourite example of this, Netflix reveals that 52.9% 
of British viewers throw their tea over the computer compared to 55.9% of people internationally. The conclusion being that British people are more protective of tea than people internationally. That is a very innocent and kind of arbitrary example, but it begins to show how these decision structures and choice structures can be used to glean conclusions about viewers that maybe they are not conscious of giving Netflix in the first place. So Flow Fiction on Netflix is here to stay. And there's a, if anyone watches Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, there's an interactive episode of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt coming next year. And there's already a Bear Grylls documentary that's interactive on Netflix that was kind of on the coattails of the Bandersnatch kind of hype. But the reasoning for, for the popularity and why Netflix goes for it might be more self-interested than simply developing how the platform can be an emancipatory creative space. And it's at this crossroads that our flow fiction adventure comes to an end. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Now let us hear from you. Search for Read Research English at Durham on social media and discuss the latest research news, events and literary insights with our community of readers, thinkers and writers. Thank you.